911, what's the nature of your emergency? Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and I have to be super vulnerable here for a second because I was super nervous that this wasn't going to work because Facebook has has went ahead and they've rolled out their new update and they have an entire new interface and everything looks totally different and what that means for doing interviews like this. I've had so many people complain that the software that they're using hasn't integrated yet. They haven't caught up with Facebook yet. So I'm glad that this went live because I am not here by myself. I'm here with my friend, Mr. Edward Hines. Ed, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good too. Thank you for joining me all the way from Pennsylvania this morning. It's nice to be able to spend some time with you and really kind of get to know who you are online especially we engage with so many different people and it's nice to be able to actualize the human being behind those profile pictures and i know that you have such an immense background you are you're a marine and you've served in iraq and i would imagine that there's layers and layers good morning you guys to your story that we're going to be privy to get to learn about today so for that i thank you and um Good morning from Ohio. I thank you for just spending time with me this morning. And if you if you don't mind, if you can kind of take us through a little bit about who you are and your background. Uh, you know my name, so we won't go over that. Uh, background is uh, I served in Iraq in 2004 in the city of Ar-Ramadi in Iraq, which um, if you looked at the news at any point during the American involvement over there, um, Ramadi was the, is the seat of government for the Al-Anbar province. A lot of people think it's Fallujah. It's not. It's, it's Ramadi. Ramadi is where the province is governed from. And during my time over there, I was with 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. And uh, our mission over there was to provide what is called stability and security operations, which is a fairly broad, vague, large mission. Uh, essentially, it was to provide stability and security operations for the local area, to get the government on its feet, to train the police, things of that nature, to get basically to get Iraq running again. And uh, we had a lot of, uh, there, were, there were quite a few battles during that time. One was between April 5th and 9th. That was the first one, the first real big one. It lasted four days and four nights. Um, it was a very surreal kind of a place to be uh, at, at that time. Uh, this is this is a year after you got to figure this is a year after the the U.S. invasion of Iraq started from 2003. Um, it was the Wild West. There was uh, uh, I remember uh, myself and another Marine. We got a mission to go to Baghdad, which is roughly 60 miles away from uh, Ramadi, and we were walking around in the city doing our thing, and and uh, we went to a nightclub that was down the street from. Uh, a green zone hospital and uh, everybody in there was, you know, either a mercenary or maybe they were some, somebody that worked in intelligence of some sort or, or they were an army cat that was stationed at the hospital, but whatever, but everybody had guns and everybody's dancing and everybody's drinking. So it was just kind of a, a wild west feel at the time. But um, that, that was Iraq at that time. And, and, and it was a very small sliver of time in which we were there. Um, 
after I got out of the service, I, uh, I went to college. I was accepted to the University of Florida with a history program. And uh, I was approached by a man named Dr. Paul Ortiz, who himself was a veteran. Uh, he, was, he had been in the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces, commonly known as the Green Berets. And he is, he's a professor of, of history at the University of Florida for Latin American Studies. And he had done some time operating in, I think, Central and South America um, and had a role in the, uh, in the operations that, that the counter-drug, counter-communist operations down there in the 80s. I don't know what his role was, but, uh, but he, it, it, at some point he was involved in that. And he said, he asked me if I would like to uh, be nominated to be entered into uh, the Library of Congress for... Uh, the Veterans Oral History Program, and I, what does I said, what does that mean, Ed? Basically, uh, when, what the Library of Congress did is they started a running program to approach uh, veterans who had served in the nation's conflicts to uh, to be given a two-hour interview, and during that that interview, you were to relay your experiences, the things you encountered when you served over there, and it's to serve as a as a as a an audio record. Mm-hmm. of the account of that war from somebody who served on the ground. And there's a bunch of guys in it. But when you consider the fact that, you know, the sheer numbers of people that are in the military that fight in a war, it, it's a drop in the bucket. There's only a handful. So, you know, and, and again, not a lot of people can say, hey, I'm in the Library of Congress. It's kind of a cool thing. So uh, while I was also an undergrad, I got tapped for a um, – uh, a program that the CIA does for analysts, and um, that was a lot of fun. That was that was interesting. So um, you get you got to learn a, a lot about how the intelligence apparatus actually works, and who gets briefed when, and it, it doesn't. A, a lot of a lot of people in the United States don't really know that before the president of the United States gets briefed by the CIA, the National Security Council gets briefed. Hmm. So. That that is something that that I think I don't know how it would affect a lot of Americans because I don't think they have like a a sense of uh, perspective on that. But if you stop and think about it for more than 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 thirty seconds, it becomes a pretty a pretty big deal. So um, after college, I went to grad school out to a small private college in Colorado Springs. And it was a uh, a lot of the people that attended the school worked for either NORAD or NORCOM. Uh, NORAD is North 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 American Defense. Uh, you're aware of that, and then uh, NORCOM is Northern Command, which is um, the United States military sets up its command sectors for the world into um, regions. So, for example, CENTCOM I think runs um, what would concern the Middle East and then your mm. Euracom, which runs the European area, and then you have AFRICOM, which runs Africa and so on and so forth. Uh, well, NORCOM used to just be the United States and Canada, and now it contains the United States, Canada and Mexico and Central America, largely. So, um, yeah, a lot of the guys that were in there were, were um, worked for those, those agencies and, um, it was really interesting. I had, um, I had, it was really, uh, one of my professors was a judge who was a Lieutenant Colonel retired 
from the United States Army Reserves, and his name was David Shakes, and he sat on the Colorado Supreme Court, on the vet court. Um, he wore a lot of hats, and he spent about a year and a half in Iraq helping Iraq set up their legal system. Hmm. And I asked him a question one day. I said, um, how long did it take us to ask the question of what kind of legal system do you want in Iraq? And he said, it took us five years to ask that question. So you get an idea of, of how these things play out when you start, you know, poking a few holes in the international scene and kind of seeing where some of the things go. And you still don't have even one tenth of one percent of what's really going on. So it's, yeah, and these are most certainly things that, as, you said, like, um, as an American, especially, we don't think about those things. Even the the setup and the locations of command centers, like there's somebody who is behind selecting all of that and for articulating all of that. So that that is most certainly something to think about. Um, that's amazing. That puts you down in the history books. Yes, it absolutely does. And <laughs> is there a way for us to be able to go on and to to hear those two hours? Yes, if you go to the Library of Congress, you have to do some digging around because it had been about a year or two before I went through and just out of curiosity, I was up one night and I couldn't sleep, so I would just look for it. If you go onto the Library of Congress website or you type into Google the oral, Veterans Oral History Project Library of Congress, it should point you in the right direction. Now, you're going to have to dig around, and from there, it, it should bring you to um, kind of like a search engine. And then what you can do is you can search by war, search by name, search by years, uh, and it will give you, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of different people in there. And uh, they all did a bunch of different things. So you have everything from, there's a couple of special operations guys. I think there's a couple of civilian contractors in there. Uh, just everybody that, that, that did anything in a war um, of some kind of, or nature is in there. So, hmm. That's cool. So yeah, uh, yeah. listening to war books. So maybe instead of dropping a bunch of money on audible, he can go check that out. That, that's really cool. I didn't even know that that existed. And yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking, Ed, because being in the military, being in the war in the years that you were, this was um, in modern time, this was such a difficult time to be as a military service member in general. And I know we're going to talk about that transition, getting out and mm -hmm. reintegrating into civilian life, but I'm just wondering what your intention was. What even made you decide to join the Marines in the first place? Early on, it was my father. And of course, just like every other young 18 year old man, you, uh, you have a lot of energy you need to burn off. And so you want to go do something and get out of high school for a while. Uh, I knew that eventually I was going to go to college, but I also had enough self-awareness, thank God at the time to realize when I was ready for college and when I wasn't. And I had gotten, I came in in 96 and got out in 2000 and I was out for about six months roughly before I decided that my life was going nowhere. I just wasn't feeling it. So I went back in and then, um, about six months prior to getting back in, uh, 9-11 happened hmm. and, um, and the rest is history. So that's that's pretty much it. So, well, we most certainly thank you for your service. Mm. And 
Um, I, I know that there are so many people that have a very hard time grasping the concept surrounding military service members transitioning into that civilian life. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, when you when a, when a military person gets out, think of it like this. Imagine if you stopped working and stayed home for, let's say, four years and then got out and then left home one day at the end of your four-year time period and tried to find a job. What do you think would happen? Crickets. Exactly. And there's a reason for that. Because when you write a resume, they're looking for a track record. Number one, what have you been doing? That's one of the biggest questions. What have you been doing since, since you came in here? And that's if you even get to the interview process. The second thing is uh, relatability. Uh, I think that when you when you hire somebody that's in the military, when you hire somebody that's that's gotten out, um, there's some jobs in the military that do translate well, such as the more technical jobs. Like um, you can get uh, like a job in airframe for fixing drones or avionics for fixing drones. That's going to make you about a hundred grand getting out if you can get hired on at a company that produces drones because you know what drones are supposed to do. But unless you know somebody and that's the big kicker, you're not, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, and it doesn't matter how smart you are really. It doesn't matter because we, we manufacture intelligence now. We may, I mean, hmm. there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have a brain that would impress you if you sat and listened to them for more than five minutes. But that's not what lands a job anymore. And, and what lands a job is knowing somebody. So when you get out and you have a guy who served for 10 years in the infantry, led people into combat, and then you come around to him and you say, well, this job's real high pressure. Are you sure you're going to be able to handle it? I'm like, well, uh, buddy, I don't want to break your, you know, burst your bubble here, but um, try being pinned down in a graveyard when you've, uh, when four guys in your team have been wounded, you're wounded and you're trying to escape and evade and get out of harm's way to get to a grunt unit nearby for safety. So you can be medevac. And that was the reality of living in Ramadi. So, uh, that was one of our, at least one of our sniper teams. Uh, they were, uh, that actually happened to them. They were pinned down in a graveyard. Every member of the four man team was wounded. And that was at the outset of, I think, April 5th, April 6th. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, if, 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 if the, the most pressure you can bring is that the board of directors wants to see something brought up by next week and there's a lot writing on it, if that's the most pressure you can bring to bear, then you're going to have to try a little harder than that, okay, because it's not risking your life. How does yeah. that stack up? Disappointing board of directors or, you know, and I get it. You can lose your company. You can lose funding. You can lose all kinds of stuff. A lot of people could lose their jobs, but you're still alive. And that means you get to fight another day. Yeah, for sure. So what advice then would you give to somebody? And, and it, does this happen when you're still active military or does this happen during the transition out to where you are on more of a, a straight path when it comes to finding something, a job, some sustainability after you do discharge from the military? That's a rough one because when you get out af after, when you're in the military, everything you want to do is command discretion. You got to have permission to go anywhere, right? Now, if you're in a job that um, is not that high demand and you can get away with it, 
like go to college or um, go do an interview or maybe go to um, go do some uh, networking. And networking, in my mind, is kind of a fancy way of saying partying, except that you're partying with a purpose. So you're going to like, uh, for example, let's say you want to do something um, in the private sector. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that work in, the, in a particular private sector area at, a, at some sort of a gathering, maybe a golfing meet or something like that or charity event. That's a good place to go and start talking to people. The other thing that you got to consider is, is um, and I learned this the hard way, was a security clearance. It takes approximately $250,000 to get one person a security clearance of a top secret level. Okay. So when these people get out and they go and they look for jobs in the private sector, they get snapped up regardless of what other qualifications they may have. Because the logic is this, if it took $250,000 to get you a security clearance, but you already have an active one, then um, um, that's $250,000 I have to spend on you. So no matter what I'm paying you, I get a couple of years free work out of you. So let's say your job, you know, you start off making 80, 90,000 a year. We'll do the math. That's like at least three years worth of free labor I get out of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I've already saved $250,000. So that's, that's, that's something you need to, to take into consideration, find out how much it costs to get that security clearance and use that as a bargaining tool when you get out. And most jobs in the military carry a security clearance. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something. Another thing. I mean, I certainly didn't know that. I didn't know that it cost that much. Good morning, you guys. I didn't know that it cost that much to be able to get cleared in that way. And then, yes, that is an asset that you're able to take with you. Um, and also something to consider when you're choosing what you want to do when you do decide to enlist. So thank you for sharing that. And I know that you recommend a documentary called Bastards Road. What is that? Bastards Road is a documentary by a friend of mine, uh, about a friend of mine named Jonathan Hancock. Jonathan Hancock, um, was a member of 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. He later went on to do some some pretty dark stuff in counterintelligence and special operations that he doesn't like to talk about. But um, he was there with us in Ramadi when all the firefights and everything broke out. And um, that is a documentary that was made about him after somebody heard uh, about him walking across the United States. And he did. And early in his journey, when I was still living in Florida, he stayed with me for about a weekend so he could rest because he had just walked from... Uh, I think at the time he was living in um, Maryland with his parents. He was, um, he, uh, was getting ready. He had just finished college. He didn't really know what he wanted to do. And he was having a lot of problems. Uh, he did a little time in prison, uh, but he got out, got his life together. He's, he's got a good life now in Arizona, but uh, his um, he's had a hard, a hard go of it. A lot of guys that get out have a hard go of it um, because there's really no guidance for you out there. 99. 5% of the population or, or whatever the percentage is doesn't serve. Okay. There's, there's really not a whole lot they, they can offer you in, in the way of advice as to how to get a job because it doesn't work like that in the civilian world. It's night and day. So he, uh, he decided he needed to clear his head and, and, and take some demons to task. And he put his, uh, he put his pack on, got a tent, got some, some stuff together, put up a GoFundMe account and walked across the U.S. and uh, he pulled into Camp Pendleton, California on a particular day. By that point, it had already made the rounds of the news and the, and, and it, it got the attention of a guy who made professional documentaries. 
and that's that's the that's history so hmm. that's cool i look forward to watching watching that for sure um if anybody wants to get a hold of you directly or maybe they they just want somebody to talk to who can share in the same experiences that you might have is there a way that they're able to contact you yeah just uh, get a hold of me on facebook just you know contact me on there i'm on it every day just checking the mail and 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 watching the world slowly go insane so it's uh it's uh that's that's pretty much uh, the best way to get a hold of me. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing pieces of your story and pieces of your heart with us. And we are forever thankful for your service. And it makes me just so honored to even know people like you. So thank you so much. Not a problem. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Have a good day. All right, you too.